Hello and welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Caners. First of all, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2016. And you know, if this year is anything like 2015, it's going to be a monumental year for climate change. As we saw with 2015, things are really heating up. And I mean that literally, things are heating up. 2015 was the hottest year on record by far. For the first time since records began, the Earth's temperature was more than one degree Celsius above pre-industrial norms. And we're seeing all sorts of crazy weather and climate conditions already. And in 2015, we passed another milestone that's caused for concern. For the last time that will occur in any of our lifetimes, we saw a concentration of CO2 of less than 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. CO2 concentrations haven't been this high in millions of years. And when they were, temperatures and sea levels were much higher. At this rate, we'll blow through our entire carbon budget for staying under two degrees in the next 15 to 20 years. But that literal portion of things heating up is the bad part. Figuratively, things have been heating up in a good way as well, because the movement to do something about climate change really started to gather steam in 2015. There were creative actions all around the world. Activists in Seattle and Portland got in the way of Shell. And in Germany, over 1,500 activists blocked Europe's largest coal mine and source of CO2 emissions with an action called Ende Galenda. In other positive developments this year, the Obama administration came forward with some tough new regulations on the carbon emissions from power plants, and the price of solar and wind energy continued to drop. There was the Pope's encyclical, which went out to the one billion Catholics in the world, and not to mention there was the amazing Leave It in the Ground campaign by The Guardian. And of course, at the end of the year, we got the Paris Agreement. 195 countries came together and agreed on a framework for moving forward and reducing emissions. And while it's voluntary and contains nowhere near the level of action required, it is a start, and it's a recognition of how urgent the climate crisis is. But all that, all that still leaves out one of the most exciting things that happened in 2015, and that's the spectacular growth of the divestment movement. The movement, which started with a trickle around 2011 with a few churches and small universities, turned into a torrent in 2015. Dozens of cities, from Oslo to Paris, divested their finances, along with big pension funds. And several bigger universities, from the London School of Economics to Oxford to Syracuse University in New York, pledged to at least partially divest their endowment holdings. And in retrospect, a big turning point in the divestment campaign was news that came out in September 2014, when this bombshell hit the press. A big announcement from the heirs of big oil. The Rockefeller family, whose fortune and legacy was built on oil, says their fund is working on a plan to dump its fossil fuel investments. As the first step of its plan, the $860 million... And it was a big moment. It got news around the world. And suddenly, the divestment movement didn't seem so cute and small anymore. Suddenly, it was mainstream. And the number of institutions taking part has been rapidly increasing ever since. Stephen Heinz is the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And while I was in Paris covering the climate conference, I had the chance to sit down with him at Le Berger to talk about the fund's decision to divest and the amazing impact it's had. And like this conversation, I'll be sharing some of the interviews that I recorded uh, in Paris, but didn't get the chance to air yeah, well, over the next couple of weeks. I was going to do this over the holidays, but, you know, 
holidays and intervene. So here's my conversation with Stephen Heinz. I started off by asking Stephen for some of the context behind how the Rockefeller Fund ended up divesting in the first place. So we are a philanthropic institution, a grant-making organization that was established in 1940 by the third generation of the Rockefeller family. And from the very beginning, for all 75 years of our history, we've been deeply committed to and engaged on environmental issues. And since the 1990s, our work has increasingly focused on climate change and energy. And we support groups all over the world who are working to fight global warming and develop the solutions that will prevent climate catastrophe. So given our profile as a foundation, we became increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that with one hand we were providing grants to support work to try to solve the climate crisis, and with the other hand we were still invested in fossil fuel companies that were putting the carbon into the atmosphere. So we began an internal discussion um, in early 2014 about this problem, this ethical dilemma. We also began to do more and more research um, and we came to see that we could in fact divest from fossil fuels and reinvest in the clean energy economy of the future and do so in a way that would protect the value of our assets and help us um, support the work that we do on the environment. And for those people who don't know, can you tell the significance of the history of the Rockefeller family and where the money originally came from? Sure. So there is an irony to all of this because the original wealth that was uh, used to establish our foundation and its endowment came from John D. Rockefeller, uh, who started the Standard Oil Company, uh, which is now ExxonMobil, in 1870. He first went to work at age 16 in 1855, and he made $45. But by 1900, he was the wealthiest man in the world, and he began giving away his money to philanthropy very rapidly. And it was his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., who inherited a great deal of this oil wealth. And his sons, who created the Rockefeller Brothers Fund in 1940, with wealth that originally came from the oil business. So it was a very significant decision for us, even more so because our board of trustees, which is the governing body that sets policy for our operations and our work, has 18 members, nine of whom are members of the Rockefeller family. So it was a very personal decision for them, as well as an institutional decision for the fund. Did it come down to a vote then? You know, in the end, we didn't need to take a vote. We did vote because we wanted to, you know, have it on record legally that we had made this decision with careful deliberation and analysis. But there was a consensus after, you know, it took us, it took us nine months of internal discussion and data gathering and conversations with our investment managers and our investment committee. And so it was, it was a process. But at the end of the process, all of our stakeholders were aligned and, and we had consensus that this was the right decision for us to make. How did the idea first get brought up? Because that's pretty early into the, the movement. Yeah, it was early. Well, we had already started the process of devoting more and more of our assets to what we might now call impact investing. The idea was to begin to invest proactively and positively in things that would also advance our mission. 
So that was very much in our mind. And then we began to hear from some of our grantee organizations like 350.org, the whole question about divestment. And people started talking about how divestment had been an important factor in the fight against apartheid in South Africa in the 1990s. So we began to talk to the leaders of the divest, invest philanthropy movement. They were very helpful to us in our process of thinking this through, and we were very happy to be able to join with them as one of the early leaders in the, in the movement itself. And, and so the foundation provided support to 350.org yes. uh, even before that? Yes. So we've been actually, we've been providing grant support to 350.org pretty much from the very beginning of 350.org, which we're very proud of. It's a wonderful organization and I think has had a very, very significant impact around the world. How much does the fund actually represent? How much money? So our assets are now around $850 million. So we're not huge, but it's not insignificant either. And it's more significant because of the brand name and the history of the wealth itself. As we were saying, it sort of accelerated the divestment movement over the past year. So at the time, were you one of the biggest to divest? Yes, at the time we were among the biggest. And I think in terms of brand name recognition, we were perhaps the most well-known. Certainly the Rockefeller name itself is extremely well-known around the world. You know, when we made the announcement at a press conference in New York during Climate Week in 2014, there was a great deal of interest at the press conference, and we knew it was a good story for the media. But frankly, the level of global interest in the media far exceeded our expectations. And what was the extent of the interest? Well, you know, it was we're still doing uh, interviews like this one. I mean, I must do an interview about our divestment at least once a week. And I've done interviews that have been published in Spanish, in German, in French, in English, of course, in Chinese, in Mandarin. You know, they just the requests keep coming in pretty much on a weekly basis. Was there anything that surprised you about this response, besides the obvious being, you know, that the family's history and the history of the fund? No, the scale of the response was surprising. No, I would say the, the part about the decision that people really were interested in is, can you actually do this in a way that continues to produce strong financial returns in your portfolio? Because, of course, that's what investors are looking for. They're investing money in order to make more money. And we want to invest our money in order to earn more money that we can use to support more philanthropy. And I think that our work is beginning to show that these two things are not incompatible, that you can actually divest from fossil fuels and invest in other things and earn very solid financial returns. And so we heard Bill McKibben say in the speech that he was giving earlier that if institutions like Harvard had divested, for example, over the past year, earlier, they haven't at all yet, but if they had divested, they would be in a better position today. Yes. There are some analyses that have been done where data has been tracked of a fossil fuel-free portfolio during a historic period of couple of years or whatever, compared to a portfolio that included fossil fuels. And many of those have suggested that you could do as well or better without. But I don't think we can say definitively, because it depends on the mix of your investments. You know, there, there are good fossil fuel free investments and there are some not so good fossil fuel free investments. So 
What do you think about the argument that, you know, Bill Gates, for example, there's a big, uh, for his foundation to divest by The Guardian, and right. uh, he refused to right. divest and said, this is impractical, we need to just maximize returns, uh, right. we need to keep using fossil fuels anyways for the foreseeable future. Right. What do you think about those arguments? Well, I, di I obviously disagree with Bill Gates, and I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to Bill Gates in various philanthropic settings in the past, and we've debated this a little bit. And I, you know, I have huge admiration and respect for Bill. I think he's obviously an ex a brilliant entrepreneur and business leader, and he's increasingly becoming a real global leader in philanthropy, so I have a great deal of admiration for him. And I appreciate what he's doing in terms of the level of investment he's making in new technology related to reducing carbon emissions, and I think that's very exciting. Nevertheless, I think he could also divest, and that would be a very significant step. But many people say that it's just symbolic, right? If you sell your shares, obviously, by definition, someone else is buying them. And one economist I talked to said, well, you are now transferring the holdings of the company as the owners from someone who might have cared to someone who almost by definition doesn't. What do you think about that response? Well, it may be true in the short term, but over the longer term, the more people divest their shares, the fewer people are going to be interested in buying those shares for the same reasons. And so the companies will lose value. And we're seeing it in the coal industry already. And I think we're going to begin to see it in the rest of the fossil fuel sector over time. And another important aspect of this is those of us who are managing endowments, universities, colleges, foundations, hospitals, etc., we are long-term investors. We're not trying to maximize quick returns. We, we need to, we have a corpus, we need to maintain the value of that corpus, hopefully it can grow over time, but we're long-term investors. So we're looking at that long-term trajectory and long-term forecasting. And that's always an inexact science, if it's a science at all. But the point is that if we are going to step up to the climate crisis globally, the fossil fuel industry is going to increasingly lose value and people will not be buying those shares. Why would they lose value? Because we can't burn the fuel anymore. You know, the, the analysis of the Carbon Tracker Institute, which is a group of very sophisticated former City of London investment bankers. They've done very, very sophisticated data modeling and analysis that suggests if we are going to stay below the two degrees Celsius cap that science tells us we really need to stay below if we're going to prevent the worst of the climate catastrophe, 60 to 80 percent of the known reserves of the fossil fuel companies today will have to remain in the ground and can't be burned because burning them will put us over that two degree cap. So those reserves, which currently are part of the asset base of those companies and are part of the value base of those companies, are going to lose value because they're unusable. They have no economic value or they have diminished economic value over this longer term horizon. So they're going to, these companies, unless they shift very dramatically their business models, these companies are going to be less and less profitable and the value of their assets is going to shrink and they will be less attractive investments. So essentially holding stock continuing to hold stock in fossil fuel companies is betting against us taking action. Exactly. In fact, also betting on a very unhealthy planet. What do you think the divestment movement goes from here? Are you, are you excited about its continued I growth? 
I am very excited about it. When I, when I think about where it was 14 months ago when we announced our own divestment decision, and there were, I think, a total of about 181 institutions around the world representing $50 billion of total assets under management that had pledged to divest. And in 14 months, we've moved from 181 organizations to over 500. 50 billion in total assets to 3.4 trillion dollars of assets. It's huge growth. So yes, I'm very excited about it. I think it's just gaining momentum every day and it really is sending a very powerful signal. And to end off, I would be curious about if you have conversations with people like Bill Gates or other, other investors, people who manage large funds, have you seen their response shift since you and the Rockefeller organization first made the announcement? Has it become more mainstream? Has that argument become more, have they become more open to the argument? It has. I don't think that Bill Gates has changed his mind about divestment yet. And I say yet because I hope that he still will at some point. But a number of other really important foundations, especially in the U.S. where I'm very active in the foundation community, um, are now going through the same kind of internal process to consider their whole investment strategies within the context of impact investing. And divestment is one way of shifting your impact from a negative impact into things that can have a positive impact. So I think the process is gaining momentum. More and more foundations are talking about it. And not only foundations, the other thing that's very interesting here is that this is becoming much more of a mainstream conversation in the investment community itself. So as several of us have noted here at the COP, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, is now talking about climate risk in fossil fuels. And that's hugely significant for him to be talking about this. And he's talking about stranded assets, these fossil fuel reserves that can't be burned. Um, we have been working very closely with the chair of our own investment committee, who is a very successful senior partner at Goldman Sachs, one of the most important and successful investment banking companies in the world. And he has gained a lot of knowledge by working with us through this process. And Goldman Sachs in the last three months announced that he's going to be leading up the whole environmental, social and governance related investing unit at Goldman Sachs because they see this as part of the future and they know that more and more of their clients, individuals and institutions, are going to be asking them to help manage their investments in a way that doesn't include fossil fuels or includes climate solutions and other socially responsible investments. So this is picking up steam, it's building momentum, and it's moving into the mainstream. It's kind of shifted the gravity of the whole conversation. I think it has shifted the gravity. Well, thanks so much for talking to us and doing the divestment in the first place. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your interest. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Stephen Heinz, the president of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. And like I mentioned at the start, I'll be sharing some of the other interviews that I recorded in Paris, but didn't get a chance to get up during the actual conference over the next couple of weeks. And that's all for the elephant this time. The Elephant is made by myself, Kevin Caners, along with Matthias Gutz and Christina Peters. And the show is made with the support of the Climate Kick Alumni Association. That's Climate KIC Alumni Association. It's a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate resilient society. You can find out more at ckaa.eu. You can find us, the Elephant Podcast, 
online at elephantpodcast.org, or you can say hi to us on Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you soon.